Hello and welcome to Vet Chloe on the Road. Insights from real people making positive change for our planet. I am Chloe, a veterinarian who has an interest in wildlife and all things environmental. And this is a show for people who would like to connect, learn, and prioritize caring for our beautiful green and blue world. Come join me as I travel around Australia in my van, Layla. Let's share all things conservation and meet all the inspiring environmental heroes along the way. And on today's episode, let's have a chat about collaborative conservation with Emma Coates, an environmental biologist who has worked for many years for the Australian government on projects to safeguard our natural world. Take a sneak peek behind the scene to learn more on the commendable work she and others have done. Welcome to the show, Emma. Thank you for being here. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. And probably to kick off, I would just like to ask you um, a bit about yourself and your career background, if you can let us know. Certainly. Um, having a passion for animals my whole childhood and living in uh, the wilds of Air Peninsula as a young person, mm. uh, I spent time between you know the bush and the beach. Right. And that really fostered a love of, of the natural world. So I mm. did a, a background in uh, biological and environmental sciences at university. And then I did my honours in environmental ecology at wow. Adelaide University Great. Uh, with an ornithologist called Dr. David Payton. Okay. And uh, then... Is that a good experience, a good education on the area? I, absolutely. I think the honours degree being a very field-based and then research and data crunching and thesis mm. writing uh, process I absolutely loved being remote in nature doing my research. That cool. was probably the happiest time in my life. Really? Absolutely, being in the bush doing what I consider to be really meaningful work. Yes, yeah. 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 Doing, you're on the right path then, you knew well, that then. Well, I, thought, I thought so. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, um, after I got my first class uh, honours degree, I uh, entered the workforce with the Department for Environment and Heritage at that mm -hmm. time. Yep. It's gone through several name changes since, Okay. but the State uh, Environment Department. For South Australia. That's right. Yep. And uh, I worked in a number of different graduate roles, and then I won yep. um, a position here in Port Lincoln, mm -hmm. and that was uh, a program called Nature Links, Great. which was around landscape scale, integrative, partnered, collaborative conservation. Yeah, awesome. I would love to dive more into that topic because sure. it sounds like a great sort of big picture take on the environment. Yes. Um, currently, you are a fabulous veterinary hospital manager, and that's how <laughs> I know you. Sure, a, a, a slight sidestep, but still um, around animal health and well-being. Yeah, so you so. enjoying that change? Yes, well, uh, I did do a sideline training uh, throughout my conservation work yes. um, to become a behavioural dog trainer. Ah, so I'm accredited. you do the puppy school and things. I do, and I have my own uh, behavioural training business as well called Train Humane. Oh, beautiful. I'll is, check that out. Yeah. I think um, that's also a great niche that I actually personally love to learn more about. There's so many... Uh, mental well-being issues with animals, yes. um, which I think need to be addressed better. <laughs> Absolutely, and I, uh, in that space, I really call myself a people trainer for dogs because I'm good. That's a good. That's a good way to do it. And I'm not. Uh, we don't do a stay and train. We train mm. the owner, and then they continue their training with support. So oh, um, awesome. both both allied industries. Very holistic. So, if we dive more into your last job can you yes. tell us a bit more about what collaborative conservation means and certainly what you did? so the program that i was employed on was called the east meets west nature links corridor so if you're familiar with the concept of wildlife corridors facilitating yes. large-scale movement of animals yes. from perhaps what used to be a 
larger connected area of multiple habitat types. Mm -hmm. With farming and development and the urban sprawl, we now see, if you look from a bird's eye picture, small fragments of vegetation across the landscape. Right. And when you zoom right out and you look at an entire peninsula's landscape, mm. it's very clear from, I guess, a, a presence and an absence uh, of vegetation to determine where pockets of wildlife, one, might be holding on, Mm. Two, might have already become extinct, or three, might have an opportunity to create linkages or work mm. in collaboration with both private landholders. Yep. So a lot of private landholders here are adjacent to or about conservation parks. Mm -hmm. So there's an opportunity for things like shelter belts, for uh, shade-providing plants, for the provision of pollinating species in corridors on private land that facilitates... Right. Na native regeneration. There's also a lot of information around the benefits of having native vegetation in good health and with good ecosystem functions mm -hmm. that benefit production. Mm. So recognize. They probably like to hear that. Uh, well, and that's exactly right. So really, <laughs> yeah. the NatureLink's concept was to go. Okay, well, we as park managers. It's mm -hmm. foolish to only manage parks independently and wear blinders. Mm. Let's recognise that it needs to be a holistic approach called Nature Links. Yes. But the linking was also around integrating and partnering with people that work in that space but are not involved in the conservation mm. um, discussion. Oh, that's a great kind of... Did, did it get created? Was it a new thing when you jumped in? Uh, or look, had it been going for a look while? it's taken... Um, and I, I have to put it out there I'm, I'm apolitical <laughs> however um, look political whims do dictate uh, what because it has what shut down funded. correct yeah it has yes Since. it ran for about oh I would say a decade or more and yeah. then uh, there was a change of government and yes when a minister changes at state level or when the policy changes then you inevitably see a, a, a snowballing effect from state mm to regional, then to local council government organisations as well. Yeah. Um, and that involves rebranding, rehiring, and the dropping Things and picking shuffle. up of programs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think probably the most proud moment of my conservation career yeah. was um, the formation of a group called Wild Air. Okay. I believe they're still going. Yes. They have a website. Um, we'll put that in the show notes then. Wild Air, <laughs> Wild Air, um, Conservation Through Collaboration. And that was okay. a group of government organisations, private landholders, research organisations, and um, the natural resource managers, and uh, uh, places like Greening Australia and the Wilderness Society. So every one of those organisations or key interest groups mm. had a member at the table at every Wild Air meeting. Great. And we decided not to do it in a city office. We decided to always meet within our Wild Air conservation area. Mm -hmm. Because when you are in that space, you think differently, really, you yeah. look at things differently, and you're also more relaxed and you're away from the corporate hustle and bustle. Mm. And we were able to put a conservation action plan into place and generate four or more million dollars worth of investment in this region. Wow. So you, how does that um, practically work? You kind of hold a conference or you gather we, all these we, different people? We have a, a, like a group of, of the passionate Wild Air members. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we have on the outside of that sort of periphery members that do everything from community connection to education to uh, surveying the landholders. We did yeah. a, a whole lot of um, interviews with landholders to find out what would it take to get you involved in yeah. revegetation? Ah, okay. So we developed a market-based instrument whereby we paid them to take mm -hmm. land out of production. Right. Forever. 
forever for carbon credits for biodiversity gains for, wow. for their profit margins wow so we tried really and the intent was beautiful and it, the intent was really around finding a mutual benefit in conservation activities for everybody for involved. everybody wow that is a brilliant um <laughs> i can see why you're proud of that I, we, I really am and that is needed and you know not just the fact that we won grants and we got funding but you know, we were able to assist with Indigenous employment and training. Wow. We were able to assist in thousands of kilometres of revegetation. Mm. We developed a direct seeding machine for our incredibly tough limestone cast-based soils here. Mm. Most revegetation on a large scale yes. um, is set back by machinery issues. So, ah, we, so you created a new machine to so do we, that? We worked with a local engineer oh. and designer here. And we have a wild air direct ripper seeder, which is now available for landholders to use in those soil wow. types. Wow, so they can kind of run it through their land and it helps. And it breaks the stones rather than breaking the tine on the machine. Oh, wow, yeah. So I mean, it's really so multifaceted. detail to it, you know, zooming in and out of it. And um, we spoke briefly about it the other day, but what is the historical background to this area? Certainly. That so made it like it is. Yeah, well, look, I think Air Peninsula is very fortunate in a lot of um if you compare it to a lot of other areas of australia we mm. are lucky still even in 2019 to have just under about 40 percent of our native vegetation remaining yeah um, that is now, good isn't it, it look it is because yeah. other areas you know you're down to perhaps 10 to 20 percent yeah. of remnancy and everything else is developed cut up sliced got roads through it mm-hmm. um but a lot of the uh, post second world war settlement um of farmers coming back from the war the, uh, the the deal that I've been in, informed of was that they would come back to do food production, mm-hmm. um, but they were required to clear the land um, mm. for, to do that. So certainly on Air Peninsula, there was a lot of wide-scale selected habitat loss. Yeah. And the majority of um, habitat loss was in our eucalypt and sugar gum woodland habitat okay. types. Yep. And there were a lot of... They were chopped for forest and clearing land for... Clearing land for production. Agriculture, yeah. That's right, yeah. And, of course, when you look back in a historical context, post-Second World War, food production was a critical issue globally. Mm, yeah. You know, so, and for certainly for Australian economic prosperity and growth. So you kind of understand the drivers at that time. Yes. Interestingly, one of the landholders that we worked with through Wild Air was one of those original farmers. He had mm. been on the land... Uh, it was, I think, his father, then Bill Senior, and then now we still deal with Bill Junior. Right. Um, and they have a place in the Sharinga Lake Hamilton area, which is a very saline, very challenging farming area. Um, mm-hmm. But they, even in Bill Senior's generation, recognised the value of conserving and protecting native vegetation. Mm. So much so that Bill Senior nearly went bankrupt trying to revegetate his property before all of these market-based instruments were around. Right. So he was one of the first inspirations for any of the stuff that Wild Air did. Right. Uh, in good, terms good of... Good case study, I guess. He was... He was uh, look, he was a brilliant man. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I guess in a Air Peninsula context now, looking back, um, we have a lot of fragmented habitat types, even though we mm. do have... Um, that remnancy still there. Yeah. I bet roads are a big issue, just slicing it up. I That's mean, right. And of course, you see those wildlife um, and bridges, you know, bridges, tunnels um, yeah. above the road, going between some telephone poles. Um, so I guess you have that going on, and yes. probably um, traffic signs saying "slow down" at Kidna's Crossing or whatever you've got Absolutely. in the area. <laughs> and in fact, you you've just hit on a very simple thing that every person who's right. ever in a national park 
can do. Yeah. And it's keep your speed low. Yeah. Even if the sign says, you know, you can do 60, one, if you go 40, you're more prepared to, one, witness wildlife if they're nearby. Yeah. And two, uh, if you use Coffin Bay National Park as an example, um, we have beautiful two types of goannas out there, and echidnas, mm. the Rosenberg's goanna and the Heath goanna. Right. Now, we noticed a massive decline in in goanna numbers. Oh. And so the department tried a few strategies, but by, by far one of the most effective is to lower the speed limit so people can prevent hitting them when they're basking on yeah, the sides of the road. Yeah, it's simple. That's, but, you know, yeah. I mean, it's simple, but until you kind of really look at the data... Yeah. Um, and now we see more echidnas. Yeah. You know, so it's, there are a lot of really simple things that we can do day to day that may not be necessarily in an advocacy or a protest or a political space that really a personal make a choice. Yeah. Actually, um, Wendy, who I interviewed in one of my first podcasts on the East Coast, would agree with you, particularly when it comes to koalas. Yeah. Um, she really um, stressed the importance of just slowing down. So that's actually a good message because yeah. part of this podcast is for us to feel empowered that we can personally, practically do something so we don't get this frustration. Absolutely, absolutely. And the other thing too is um, throughout that conservation role that I, I worked in, um, it, I, it became so much clearer to me that the most sustainable and ethical way of conducting conservation is with everybody's involvement. Mm. Because yeah. if you do anything with a single focus, one, you run the risk of, one, it not working or it not being sustainable over the long term. Yeah. But if you don't have community buy-in, if you don't have Indigenous people's buy-in, if you're mm. working with or around traditional lands, it just, it's a counterproductive thing. Yeah. So working with... Did everybody want to be involved that you approached? Uh, no. And yeah. that's okay. As long as you give them an option. Awa- I think awareness. Yeah. Awareness of, of the pathways, awareness of the programs. Yeah. Um, but also trusting the individual that you have on the ground. Yeah. Um, the, the sad, I think, broader issue around government funding for conservation um, is it's um, often short term. So, for example, um, you know, we would be criticised when you first land in a region in a job like that. Oh, you're going to blow in for a year? And, yeah. then, and then go away. Uh-huh. And that was one of our biggest challenges with the community because yeah. they want someone who is going to be, one, committed to the region, committed to the job, but committed to them right. in terms of long-term relationships. Mm-hmm. And I was born in Port Lincoln. I have family here. Yes. And even though I was a blow-in when I came over from Adelaide to do the role, yes, there was, I think, an element of natural trust because I was born here. Yeah. I, I did see other your point. land as well. In that well, kind of sense, you, know, you know, but the other thing too is um, the government. I think undermines sometimes. Sometimes government programs undermine their success by only providing short-term funding for the officers that have to deliver them. Mm. And I think that's probably not just South Australia. I think that's a government issue. So for the officers that have to deliver them, as in... So um, my role was the project officer for the East Meets West Nature Link. Right. And and my contract was year by year, and every year I'd have to apply for my job again. Ah, and see if they wanted to employ you again. They could easily pull it, yeah. So, and... and, and Why do they do that, do you think? Uh, Look, that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, (laughs) across... Or are they unaware of it? No, it's so I don't think it's I think it's a very clever political strategy to not put your eggs in one basket. Ah, I think if, if political change whim changes and you've contracted you somebody out. for five years, yeah, they're better off doing it for one year and then another year and another year because they're so likely to have some yeah. whim change or for programs to be dropped or renamed or reshaped. Yeah, and yeah. that of course decreases the confidence that both the officer delivering it and the community 
Mm-hmm. You know, we want we wanted Nature Links and Wild Air to be mm. a forever thing. Yeah. Ideally, because that is the model. Isn't it crazy? I guess um, it might reflect on us as people what our priorities are, that the government... Chop and change. Well, it, it just sort of sidelines environment. It's not really think, a big uh, voting position. We the sad thing is when you look at political whims, health, environment and education yes. tend to be the three least profitable um, right. portfolios. right. Whereas what economy and trade and... Trade, export, um, uh, consumer and business affairs. You know, it's... Uh, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think awareness and knowledge is power, certainly with t- digital technology and access to internet and peer-reviewed science. Yes. And, you know, uh, the internet will give you potentially a better access to knowledge about how to yeah. get involved in conservation, but it can also be completely overwhelming. Yes. And then you feel somewhat disenchanted and unempowered about gosh the world is falling apart and I just don't know what to do but yeah it might be as simple as five small behavior changes that you apply in a month you might have one less takeaway coffee in a takeaway cup you might choose to walk to work one out of five days instead of driving mm-hmm. you might carpool to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions you might you know there might you know, be you, you might um a meat-free day exactly kind of do have different nutrition you mm. might consider another way that you could decrease your impact on the environment yeah but i think the other thing too is um finding somebody that helps you maintain your passion mm. and that yep. might be a group uh, yep. volunteering that might be another individual that you you know yep. check in with but I think if the passion is there, you can find a pathway. Yeah. And you mentioned the other day of some good um, groups, such as um, yeah, Greening Australia. What are the other ones? So there are a lot of um, non-government organisations which are working in this space and doing fantastic work. Greening Australia is mm-hmm. one of them. The Wilderness Society. Yes. The Nature Conservancy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are... Australian Wildlife. Uh, I was just going to say the Australian Wildlife Conserv- oh, yeah, yeah, Conservancy. Yeah, uh, Animals Australia in more of a, I guess, a... Um, uh, political kind of uh, place mm-hmm. but the other thing is that there are lots of regional and um, on the ground action groups yes so okay. here in South Australia we have friends of parks yes so depending on which region you go to um, if you want to get involved in a planting or a weeding day or you just want to spend time in the park with some like-minded people yeah then you know it's really good to join in with a friends of parks group or so you can go to your local park ask if they have a friends of the park that's group right and, and a lot of that's up. online now yeah yep that's a good advice actually because yeah. then you get more stuck into what's down the road for you i think um, the other thing too is that every national park has a management plan mm-hmm. and they are all available online so, so check them out so if ever you think gosh i really would love to know what they're what the plan is for this part longer term. Ah. Then, you know, th- that information is out there. So the, the, the key words would be that park's name plus action plan? Management plan. Management plan, yeah. right. Yeah. And anything that's published, um, you know, through that sort of public parliamentary space yes. is, is available for public access. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good um, you know, um, idea to, for us all to go and check out. So what are the main issues for conservation in this area? So Nature Links is... A big thing because what yeah, animals so need to wild, move through. Yeah, so certainly and wildlife corridors. Could you to test that improved movement. things? Were you able oh, to? No, that's look, hard. and that is hard at an ecosystem level scale. Yeah. Um, you need multiple year, multiple variable data yeah, collection okay. to really give a good indication yeah. of that. But certainly, um, there were a lot of short term gains. But I guess in terms of what the key conservation issues. Yeah. On Air Peninsula yes. right now, uh, I would argue 
uh, feral animal control. Yeah. Uh, let's be honest, this is Australia. We do have um, feral cats, we do mm. have rabbits, and we do have foxes. Mm-hmm. And I've seen rabbits around here. We, we <laughs> Unfortunately, as lovely as they are, you know, I mean, to be honest, if you look at the fox as a species in its natural habitat, it's actually remarkable. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible animal. But here in Australia, we have so many issues with uh, feral animals both either out-competing or out-resourcing or predation mm. on our native animals. And unfortunately, we have the one of the highest rates of extinction of marsupials and mammals in the world. Yeah. And that's something that I think is a real challenge because yeah. a lot of our animals are cryptic, nocturnal, and in low numbers. Mm. So just yep. by that very design... Cryptic meaning the time of day that they're... Cryptic meaning that just they may be very difficult to find. Yeah. They may be a, a camouflaging species. They may be a species yeah. that requires a very unique ecosystem type. And you've probably heard of the, um, the cat wall that they are implementing. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I've yet so, to learn more. Um, well, in fact, one of the projects that we did through NatureLinks, yes. um, there is a conservation park uh, about three hours up the road from here. Mm-hmm. It's Australia up the road, three <laughs> and a half hours, um, is called Venus Bay Conservation Park. Okay. And Venus Bay has a predator-proof area of their peninsula. Uh-huh. So the geographic sort of um, setup of of part of Venus Bay Conservation Park is that there is water and only access on one part of the land. Mm. So they created a floppy-topped, inward-facing, predator-proof fence okay. that keeps foxes and cats out. Yeah. And they spent a huge and rabbits amount they of time. Under. They do, but they've, they've been controlling within the fence line for the entire time that the fence line's been up. Okay. So the aim was to have a discrete part of the peninsula where brush-tail betongs, Mm-hmm. And bilbies could be reintroduced. Bilbies. I know. I love the bilbies. So they did rabbit control, fox control, and cat control yes. within that area. And over time, it got to the point where those the bilbies and betongs were actually, you know, having a, a possibility out of life. Mm. The interesting thing is, is that we come back to this feral animal control, is that we did a study of the genetic components of the remaining cats within the enclosure and outside. They're mm. genetically distinct, so there's no cross-pollination there. Uh-huh. So the elements of this that concept were working. Wow. Because we weren't getting any new numbers. We just had to get rid of the last remaining trap-bait-savvy animals within yes. that area. Right. But I think that still remains one of our biggest challenges, is that to deliver landscape-scale, true reintroductions, true pest control, weed management... It, it's expensive, it takes a long time, and, and it needs multiple partners. <laughs> and it keeps coming back if you drop the ball, right? It just grows back, which is back. the, I guess, links us back to the short-term funding priorities yeah. that frustrates both the people delivering the programs and the community. They've seen six programs come, go, come, go, right. and they all have the same kind of intent. Yes, okay. So you can kind of see why yep. people do get frustrated in that space and mm-hmm. why the environmental section, because it's such a big huge, very expensive thing to do properly, mm-hmm. why it just kept getting pushed aside. Gets pushed aside. But, you know, how many people are involved in the environmental sector of running Australia? I mean, I guess there's more than I realise, which is comforting. Sure, sure. Look, I couldn't give you a, a hard and fast figure. Yeah. Certainly, um, I know that there is, you know, across all states, yes. there is a level at regional. Yes. There's a level at local government, so council level. Yeah. Then there's a state, and then there's a federal level. Yeah. So that is a consistency across pretty much all of the states. Yes. But every state is also run differently with different policies and procedures. Mm. So, yep. for example, 
brush-tailed possums. They yeah. are a native um, species, but in many states, that native species has become a problem. They're yes. in too high numbers, they're causing damage, and some states will cull. Some mm-hmm. states, can't you can't put them back in the wild if they come into care. Mm-hmm. It's the same with kangaroo legislation. It's mm. different in every state. Yes. Makes it very different, very difficult to manage holistically yeah. across state borders. And so do you think that's an area that Australia needs to improve on? Oh, that- look, I think... I think Anytime that you take a big picture goal, yeah. you have to take a big picture uh, step back and realise that no one individual or organisation could ever achieve that alone. Mm. Um, and there's strength in numbers all and linked. sharing knowledge. And yeah. I can't tell you how many um, amazing knowledge sharing opportunities the Wild Air Group had just sitting around the same table. Yeah, nice. And everyone wants to collaborate and help. That's right. Yeah. And because you're meeting in a beautiful natural space yeah. with people who share your same goals. So did you mean outdoors? Or? Uh, sometimes we did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for example, um, one of our areas that we worked on was the Venus Bay area. So uh-huh. uh, we might you know, hire a local's cabin. Yeah. Sleep in swags. Yeah. But that's very different to your average corporate business meeting. Definitely. <laughs> um, which is why we like Probably it. more fun. Way more fun, but also it's yeah. the time when you're not sitting around the table, when you're sharing a meal. Yeah. Or you're walking down the very beach that you're aiming to conserve. Yep. That you think differently. Yeah, okay. As in you, well, probably make genuine friendships with each other and maybe... Genuine connections. Yeah, creative so ideas connect, come. Connecting people, connecting habitat connecting landscapes yeah really because you're in the in the realm of environment but you're obviously a big people person because that's what's going to make it effective people i think we need we need a good mix of of the community community outreach and education we need those liaison officers on the ground and they need to be you know loved and and trusted by their communities yes we also need really strong links with indigenous culture because i think that's been a an oversight for far too long yes i think um, working in both non-government and government spaces is also important. Mm. But, I mean, notwithstanding, there are some incredibly dedicated volunteers out there mm. that do stuff because they know it's needed. Yeah. And that is so admirable. But yet, all these individual things are happening. They, they, it's like a jigsaw. Yeah. So if they're all happening so independently, that's what Wild Air's all about. See, that's exactly right. right. That was its intention. And I mm. hope that the group is still going strong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'll... I'll check that out for sure. Yeah. Another thing, if you're looking online, is a wonderful program called Nature Maps. Aha. Uh-huh, yep. Which you, if you are interested in, oh, well, what, what area um, has this vegetation? Or mm. where could I see where a fire has gone through? Mm. Nature Maps has all of those uh, geographic information system layers available for general public use. Yeah. Okay. No, this is what's good because um, you're kind of someone that's um, been really stuck into this area that I'm... Slightly what? passionate. Slightly <laughs> passionate about it, yeah. I'm um, interested to know what, what goes on when the rest of us are at our work jobs, um, yeah. being mechanics and teachers and retail, um, you know, for the people that are actually protecting the land on the ground. That's right. Um, and there are so many more aspects that we, you know, don't yeah. necessarily have time to get involved Education. in. Fire, fire management is one in Australia. Yeah. Huge issue. Right. But also an opportunity. Yeah. You know, we need to, uh, first priority always is protection of, of life and property. Mm, and particularly yeah. in the regions, and we on Air Peninsula have had devastating wildfires, devastating mm-hmm. prescribed burns that where wind conditions have, you know, changed unexpectedly, where more yeah. land has been burnt. And yeah. However, the Australian landscape is evolved to have 
some semblance of fire activity. Yes. But again, moving away from traditional burning practices uh, from Indigenous peoples and moving towards different vegetation types, uh, you know, um, having to consider what European or introduced species do in that fire context. Mm. For example, my father's property out here at Charlton Gullier Peninsula was affected by the Wangari bushfire. Okay. And the Wangari bushfire, we lost many lives. It's oh no. It's oh. a very very tragic part of Eyre Peninsula's history. Yeah. Um, and my father's property was involved in that. Now, it was the Aleppo pines that had been around for possibly Got- eighty years on yeah. that property. Because they were so big and so large, large, and they were quite fire resistant. Yeah. When the fire front came through, it gave him an opportunity to protect his home. Mm. Now, if you talk in terms of pure conservation, one might argue that you get rid of all invasive or introduced species. Because mm. when you think about it, you know we talk about um, feral animal control because they're introduced and they're not supposed to be here. Yes. But yet, in this one freak moment, it was an introduced row of big thick old you know pines that were probably planted when the farmhouse was built out of the local duckstone well you know in the 1800s yeah that's right you know that that, and that stopped was, it, did it? it well it didn't stop it okay but it slowed the fire front down enough because that the, those trees with the amount of sap and their particular biology you know i couldn't go into right. that but um they were retardant or resistant enough mm. to slow down that front so that dad could be reactive. Now, mm. that is one tiny example yeah. of how you can't be black and white in conservation. It's mm. not always good or always Because bad. maybe you would want to intentionally plant those trees that's as buffers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't think that that's necessarily why they were planted in the beginning. They were planted because mm. it was probably European settlement, mm. it was colonial. You know, it was a lot of things up for debate, right? It's fascinating. It is, yeah. Fascinating. But yeah, they're, they're, it's a very complicated space. And and what kind of people get into this space? They've generally done crazy ones. Similar <laughs> training to you. <laughs> ones that want to be frustrated forever. Yeah, they're obviously after just sort of fulfillment um, versus... Um, you know, a salary tag. <laughs> Do you know, I think because there are so many different aspects to conservation, we have the guys on the ground, you know, in our works crew who build fences and, yes. uh, you know, check on uh, wildlife surveys. Then we have our research crew, you know, mm. that, that spend time years and years out filthy living in tents capturing data and sitting in front of computers for hours at night yes. crunching that and then writing reports <laughs> then we have the policy makers then we have the advocates we have the protesters so it really depends what your main drivers are as to which channel you go to my yeah. partner was on fire crew for a couple of years and loved it yes. because it was he's a practical man yeah drive trucks and burn stuff <laughs> i mean you know but I liked it because I got to deal with other passionate people. Yeah. And we had to channel whatever you want. goal. Whereas yeah. other people want to be able to set the policy at national level. And mm. so they're in board meetings all the time and they're liaising with, you know, the political boffins. And so I think it really depends on your passion and your driver as to what area of conservation you can get into. Mm-hmm. But don't forget, there's a lot that we can do without being involved in anything formally mm, yeah yeah with just your day-to-day you could you could make you should set yourself a revegetation goal for yourself right yeah you could plant species in your garden that attract native pollinators and birds yeah i think we all kind of dismiss those kind of um those things easily those things can make a difference and in mm. fact you know the um the that saying of you know um 
what one person does, I, th- I can't think what, what it is exactly, but, you know, it's like that jigsaw puzzle model. If there's yeah. 13, 13 people all doing different things and then they all decide to do one, then the image becomes clear. Comes, comes together, yeah. And um, this is a broad question, but what do you think Australia is doing well and not so well when it comes to conservation? Yeah. Oh, look, I have been out of insight. the industry for a couple of years. Yeah. As, as you mentioned, I've been um, in the veterinary industry for a little while as a, as a sidestep. Mm. Um, look, I think that I think that probably the, the biggest issue is a lack of meaningful funding mm-hmm. and long-term commitment yes. at federal and state level from our governments. Yes. Now, this is my personal opinion. Yeah. Um, I really feel like a lot of the wins on the ground where yeah. it counts are perhaps sometimes lost because of short-term thinking at, um, mm. at portfolio level. Mm. And then funding's pulled, projects collapse, and That's right. things might go backwards. And then if you've been, I mean, imagine if you've been a landholder on, on, in, a, in an area for 50 years. Yeah. You've seen what works. You've yep. seen what comes and goes. Yeah. Yeah, we don't listen to those people enough. Yeah. Yeah. So you were basically employed, you were a government employee? I, I was, guess? yes. Yep, and I was. so they... So I can't poop in too much. Well, yeah. So but they, I mean, it's great that, um, you know, this is where it goes towards sort of um, making people collaborate, which is what your past job was. Absolutely. And I think... Yeah. Um, Kept you busy? Always well, on the phone, emails, meeting? Yeah. That was sort of... Yeah. Yeah. What but you I did. think the other thing too is once you have a shared goal and we didn't come at it with our own goals and force each other to adopt them we set mm-hmm. shared goals okay our plan was had input from everybody in that space every as diverse a people and involvement as we could manage yeah and that was sustainable for them yeah uh and i think setting shared goals was probably one of the most fundamental parts to that program success mm. yeah because when you adopt somebody else's goal, which would you're not be really nature links, or is this that was wild else? air? Wild, yeah, wild that air. That was yeah. wild air. Yeah, yeah, that really does sound like a fabulous group. Now, <laughs> if you are heading up the coast, I would um, yes definitely recommend um, yeah, a Venus Bay visit or stopping in at Coodley Park, which is a, a accommodation place that's got an incredible private beach. Oh, yes. Okay, I will look at the map <laughs> with you on that. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think all in all, it's quite encouraging to know that Australia does have this network of dedicated people behind the scenes absolutely um, working away they do um <laughs> you know um you know any and, and organizations like birdlife australia yeah talk about simple things like when birds are nesting on beaches don't let your dogs run up to them yes that's really easy to do yeah if you know that it's happening yeah yeah so it's about I'll awareness have, i'll have to definitely about awareness and i'll have to um you know include all these different links and ideas of different organizations that people might be interested in yeah, checking sure. out in their area um well i think that you're doing a fabulous job and i actually <laughs> want to touch briefly on um the fact that you have some amazing animals yourself at home oh. you've got maybe just um as we start to wrap up sure. give us a, a brief update on oh, what you've got course. at home so look coming from a conservation space i do have a um a, a passion for native animals yes and then working in the veterinary space you would find small native animals handed in over the counter yes and they require you know some of them require specialist knowledge yeah and particular ways of keeping them and over the years i have had um barn owls 20, yes. 20 frog mouths 
I've had oh, pygmy po- the Western pygmy possum, which is endemic to uh, Western Eyre Peninsula and Lower mm. um, Southwest Western Australia. I'll have to share a picture because you've got one. They're so tiny. They're about the size uh, when they're adults. They're about the size of a mouse and are commonly confused with mice. Yes. One of their biggest threats is cats. Mm. Um, but I also have a brush-tailed possum, which was the uh, second record in 40 years here on Air Peninsula because we decimated their population after clearing a lot of the sheer oak woodlands. And, um, I mean, I have dogs and cats, but pretty much yeah, I have birds. So that was a great... That possum is just a great sign that some are still out there. Well, yes, but, I mean, a lot of a lot of people who hear this podcast in another state would, would be like, why have you got a possum? Oh, my God, <laughs> we're trying to get rid of 500 of them. You know, they're in my roof. They drive me nuts. Yeah. But, again, that just speaks to... The inconsistencies in the way we manage Australian wildlife and conservation, state to state, region to region. Yeah, it's Um, different. But however, I must say, if you uh, hold a tiny baby possum in your hands and they look up at you with those amazing deep brown eyes, you try saying no. (laughs) (laughs) You're gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, what about the link between veterinarians and conservation? What do you foresee there? Well, look, I think... uh, Vets by uh, by default, I think, and some some vets certainly don't. Um, but some vets are wonderful in that they will give free wildlife health assessments. If mm. somebody finds a bird on the road and it can't fly, then they will he- either humanely euthanise that at no cost, or mm-hmm. they'll give an assessment so that a carer knows if it's possible to be rehabilitated and yes. or released. And those links have been somewhat tenuous, I think, over time, but. There's a wonderful group called Say Them, South Australian Veterinary Emergency Management. Mm. And they are in response to wildfires like Wongari, where massive losses of wildlife and unfortunately human life mm. were sustained. They're trying to think about the preparation and collaboration with the conservation, the veterinary. They're trying mm. to make sure that we have a collaborative um the framework in place because we could be a little extra piece to the puzzle exactly um, exactly but i don't know at a state and federal level really what if those links exist mm. certainly with biosecurity yes uh, customs yes and i've got a friend disease. in that area yeah um, but yeah in terms of um australian conservation specific mm. veterinary linkages say them the south australian it's emergency crew is really the only ones that i know of yeah, yeah. and why is um i think around australia yes, is yes. a big and fauna rescue big and one yeah um and i must say um from my experience most vets are always happy to take them in absolutely <laughs> um, and feel a um kind of duty yeah. um that they're there to be advocates for animals That's no matter right. what so That's i'm right. always um um i think bosses can side look and roll their eyes and it's taking their employees um yeah. distracted but as an employee yeah you just go in wholeheartedly but the other thing too is that um yeah, unless you've done training in native animal veterinary medicine it mm. can be a really challenging exotic space yeah. to work in yeah you know and and, and they are a, we do have some unique critters here we do we, do. <laughs> so we did not focus on it much at uni you well, know there and with was... unique veterinary requirements and so yeah they're quite brief <laughs> quite, well, and the other thing too is i guess research around what drug what drugs are safe for a marsupial yes whether i mean as i mentioned to you i'm suspicious that one of my pygmy possums may have cushing's disease but, yeah but we don't know who to ask and where to test and yeah you know all that sorts of things so yeah there's a lot of a lot of stuff that uh we still need to learn yeah fabulous and you know is there anything else you would like to say yeah. as we i guess Oh, I just really would encourage everybody that is listening to this to really have a, a love and respect for the natural world around you because it provides us with everything that sustains us. Yeah, yeah. It's very healing and 
I always have faith in the fact that it is good at healing if we give it time, if we allow it. And look, the Indigenous people that I've worked with in the past will say that. Would they? they ah. would. Your connection to country yep. is critical. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a really beautiful way. Yeah. To, to, to see it. Yeah. And I think, yeah, we know the health benefits, we know the relaxation benefits, so get out there. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Emma, for your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Chloe. <laughs> All right. Stay in touch. See you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed and learned a few things. Incredible what is going on behind the scenes. I also had a strong interest in doing conservation biology instead of veterinary medicine. So it was a unique and wonderful opportunity to learn insights through Emma's amazing work. And I hope you too are inspired to follow up on some of the great leads Emma gave and make the conservation community more part of your life. As always, you can check out the show notes. Just simply scroll up in the podcast app or go to my website, betchloe.com. And if you like the show, I'll be most grateful if you could tell a friend, subscribe or rate and review on iTunes. It all helps. Next episode, every hump day morning, meet two incredibly dedicated kangaroo carers, Kim Hayward and Esther Craig. Esther was one of the vet nurses I've been working with in Port Lincoln, and she took me to Kim's house on a day off, one of her twice weekly visits, to spend time with her roo rescue, Reggie, and to kindly introduce me to the other 11 roos in Kim's care. As soon as we walked in the front door, there's a glass wall to the backyard with a sand pit, and about five or six kangaroos were lounging there as if it was completely normal, chilling out in her own living room. The youngest Rue Ruby was jumping around inside and hopping in her makeshift fabric pouch hanging from a low bar, then joining us on the couch for a feed of milk. These ladies are the real McCoy when it comes to being Rue Mamas, and I would love you to meet them. Till then, stay kind and I'll see you at the next stop. <laughs>